Thank you so much for checking out our podcast. We hope today's message encourages, inspires, and empowers you to follow after Jesus like never before. Before we get into today's teaching, I want to invite you to join us live at one of our services at any of our three campuses in West Virginia, or join us as we stream live online. For more information or to save your seat at one of our services, visit our website, iheartchurch.online. Now let's check out today's message. What if we have been looking at life through the wrong lens? What if we could find the answers to life's toughest problems, finances, relationships, family, success, hidden in the paradoxes of Scripture? What if we've been looking at life upside down? So we are in, still in our series, Life Upside Down, and I love uh, the idea that we're trying to present in this series of studying the paradoxes of Scripture and how often, and you're going to, I mean, there's no way we could cover all of the paradoxes in Scripture of these kingdom principles that are backwards. I've heard one pastor say the kingdom of God is like backwards land. It looks completely opposite than the human way of thinking. You know, God said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. In other words, God has a perspective looking down from heaven, and we have a perspective looking up. And the human perspective perspective is backwards than kingdom perspective. This is why in the kingdom it's more blessed to give than to receive. Do you see this? This is why in the kingdom to be a leader I must first be a servant. And so we're going to cover actually two, um, not exhaustively, I could never cover them exhaustively, but uh, as best as I can do with my minutes allotted me, we're going to discuss two paradoxes uh, and that's going to be loving your enemies and weakness is strength. Weakness as strength. Um, and I'm doing both of them, hopefully tan- making them tandem, because I really believe that they uh, coalesce, that they go together, they uphold one another. I'm going to show you that. But let's go straight to the words of Jesus in Luke. This is chapter t- uh, 7, verse 27. But to you who are willing to listen. Now, I could do a whole message just around that small statement. To those of you willing to listen, this means Jesus is about to set off a discourse. He's about to start a conversation that probably most people do not want to hear. And so I'm going to echo the words of Jesus. This is for those willing to listen. And I'm going to go ahead and make this disclaimer. This message is going to make you uncomfortable. This message is going to set something off in you, rub up against areas you would rather be not talk about and not address. This message is going to force you to open up crevices of your heart that you would prefer to stay closed off. And I would say this, especially for men. Now, why am I calling out men? It's not because I'm a feminist or anything like that. I'm I'm saying that the Lord, think about the way that a man was created to be a protector and a defender, a provider, a conqueror, right, Um, competitive, it requires strength. And so you glory in your strength, but yet Jesus and the scriptures is going to ask you to become weak so that you can become strong. And so especially for men that have trouble connecting with their emotions, they would prefer to not talk about that. It's fine. It's no big deal. Move on. Pretend like it's not there. Do something else. Work hard. Play video games. Watch TV. Get involved in sports. All of us do this, but especially men, because it's harder for you to be weak, this is going to possibly rattle you. 
I watched the nine o'clock service. I gave the same warning and preface and disclaimer. And I watched the men visibly discomforted. And I'm sorry. I wish that the Lord did not give me this message, but he did. But I'm telling you, the Lord wants to put his finger on things. It's going to require that you glory in your weaknesses. So if you are willing to listen, if you find yourself mad at me, avoiding it, squirming in your seat, wanting to get out, wanting to go to the restroom right now, wanting to turn the TV off, getting distracted by social media, please hang in there with me. Okay, because there is a reason the Lord is not, he only cuts where he intends to mend. He only tears down where he intends to build up. And I'm going to show you why he tells us these uncomfortable things out of love. But he says, but to those of you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. So we're actually going to put this into practice. If you would stand up and slap the person that's sitting next to you across the cheek, and we'll see who will obey. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. If you like that coat that your neighbor is wearing, now is the time to ask them. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, they're stolen from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. Okay, is this something we actually teach in church usually? Think about how we teach our kids. Somebody's bullying them. Don't you let them push you around. You punch them back. Somebody punches you, you punch them back. Okay, are we, are we guilty of this? We teach our kids not to be pushed over. We teach our kids, you got to look out for number one. You don't let them take advantage of you, don't we? And so do you see how this is counterculture? What Jesus is saying is hard sayings. Who teaches their kids? Okay, buddy, I know he punched you. Just give him your other cheek. Right? I mean, I know they stole your lunch money. Give them your snack money too. Right? Nobody, we don't teach this. But Jesus is making some huge assertions. Verse 32, if you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. Even sinners love their mama, right? And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. If you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Not impressive. You can do that in your own human ability. Even the world tells you you should treat those kindly who treat you kindly. But for, verse 35, but he says it again. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great. You will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful. So he's saying you have to be kind to those who are unthankful. Those who don't thank you, don't appreciate you, don't even notice the good things that you do for them. Why? Because you're made in the image of God. You bear the name of Christ, Christian, his name. This means you have to act like him, and he is kind and good to people who are mean to him. 36, you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. You're taking on his nature. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, or it will come back against you. Forgive others, big, bold mic drop statement. Heavy statement. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. This is just one place that it's relationally connected. Forgiveness is tied to us releasing forgiveness. Just one place in scriptures. 
Forgive others and you will be forgiven. If this were the only place where forgiveness for us was conditional on releasing forgiveness to others, we might could skirt by it. But Jesus, and I have some of them in here, in the epistles and the words of Jesus, red letter words, he drops that several times, tying, if you don't forgive, you cannot be forgiven. Again, don't teach that a whole lot. Give and you will receive. It's not talking about money. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together, making room for more, running over, poured into your lap. The amount of mercy, kindness, love, forgiveness, compassion that you give will determine the amount you get back. Whatever measuring tool you use to give out love and mercy and forgiveness and kindness and understanding and giving grace, if people are harsh with you and they don't give you much grace, you need to ask yourself, am I reaping what I have sown? Because the measuring tool that I use to give mercy is the same measuring tool that will be used to give me mercy. This is a mic drop moment. Now listen, this is revolutionary because it's so counterculture. It's still revolutionary for us, and we've had 2,000 years where we've kind of been exposed to this teaching. For 2,000 years, we've heard this. This is not the first time you've heard many of these things, so we've had time to sort of like desensitize to it. Can you imagine, though, the original hearers, especially in a dominant empire of Rome that was wicked and harsh, when Jesus makes these statements to the Jewish people about this, what was going on in their minds? I mean, totally mind-blowing. Now, why would he say such revolutionary statements? It reminds me of what he says to Pilate. Jesus answered Pilate, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. So Pilate's asking Jesus, why are you not defending yourself? Are you a king? Why don't your followers rescue you? And he says, no, no, no. That's not the order. That's not the law of this kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. He's talking about a kingdom that's got a new jurisdiction, a new set of rules. Hebrews 13 tells us, for the world, this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. In Philippians, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. As citizens of heaven. This means as a Christian, I'm like an ambassador in a foreign nation. So the laws of this current land don't apply to me. The laws of my home that I'm going to, that I'm returning to, are what I'm living under. Not human law, but heaven's law. I don't get to only abide by human law. I have to abide by heaven's law. And heaven's law is one of loving your enemies, forgiving those who hurt you. This is a new jurisdiction. This is new areas, new territory that's been marked off. And Jesus gets to define the rules. We don't. We don't get to define that. If I was an ambassador of the United States living in Iran, then do you understand that I would have immunity, diplomatic immunity, that if I'm under their laws, did you know that an embassy in another country, you're not even allowed, the, uh, the, the owners of that country, the residents of that country are not allowed to step into the embassy without permission. If the building were on fire, their government could not come in and, 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 and respond unless given permission. Why? Because technically, although the building is in that nation, it belongs to the United States of America. And so I'm telling you, you belong to heaven. You are a citizen of heaven. And so we have to know these paradigms. We have to know the boundary lines and how they differ from human jurisdiction as to kingdom jurisdiction. So Jesus is setting the rules here. And, and we have to stay within kingdom jurisdiction. 
So let's look at what really loving your enemy looks like. And I want to preface this really fast um, and say, kingdom, when I'm talking about loving your enemies, I've done enough counseling through 20 years of ministry to understand when I say loving your enemies, that some of you, it is big T trauma. And so I'm going to talk about doing our part for, think, for offenses that we've made, and mostly that applies to relational conflict where two parties really have done wrong to one another and acknowledging that. What I am not saying is that you are the reason to blame for your sexual or physical abuse. Does everyone understand this? What I'm also not saying is that the, it would be the Lord's will for you to stay or to keep your children um, around an abuser. That even David, when Saul was throwing spears at him, fled. He got out of the situation. Even Jesus, when it was not his time and people were pursuing his life, left and hid and slipped out of the crowd. So it's not ungodly um, to get out of that situation and to ask for help. So biblical forgiveness does not equal enabling the perpetrator to physically or sexually abuse you or those you love. Do we understand that and are we clear? Okay, but what is loving your enemies? Number one, it's praying for them instead of retaliating or defending yourself. Praying for them instead of retaliating or defending yourself. In 1 Peter 2, 23, it talks about Jesus. It says, he did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. Pilate was marveling at Jesus. You have nothing to say about these accusations? They were clearly running his name, and they were clearly accusing him of things he never did. And yet Jesus, in Isaiah, it says, went out like a lamb to the slaughter, not opening his mouth. He did not respond. He, did not, he let them think what they were going to think. Isn't it a human tendency, the second a conflict happens between you and someone else, that you want to go to any third parties that are connected to you and start immediately defending yourself so that if they come, they know who's really in the wrong, Right? We want to go start making a case for ourselves, clearing our name preemptively. But biblical loving your enemies does not do this. Why? Because if I spread a seed of discord, let's, let's just for an instance, let's say that me and Galicia got into it. We had words, right? I didn't like what she did. So I want to make sure that our mutual friend Kayla understands who was really wrong. And it wasn't me. It was her, right? So I say things, and maybe I exaggerate or I say it in emotion. I'm crying. What is she going to feel? The empathy for me, she's going to hear only my side of the story. What's going to happen is later on, she and I will probably work this out. But guess who's not going to have it worked out in their heart? Kayla. I have just deposited seeds of offense in her heart, and a borrowed offense is way harder to release than a personal offense. When someone hurts someone you love, it's even harder to release than if they've done it to you personally. This is why sowing seed among, sowing uh, discord among brethren is so damaging, because you leave it, it's already fixed in your mind, but they're still left. That person's reputation is now ruined in, in their eyes because of what you said in pain. And so not defending myself, trusting that God will work it out, and if they think I'm wrong and I'm not, if they think I did something that I didn't do, then I can release it and let God defend me. It's a mark of honor in Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Covering the fence seeks love and reconciliation. I want this to work out later on, that if they're repentant and broken, I haven't tarnished their name because of what they've done to me. I want reconciliation, not justification. If I cover, I want reconciliation. If I spread it, 
I want justification for myself. I want to look better. So covering the fence, I would tell you, is a mark of honor. I'm just going to say that. But I'm not just asking you to be quiet, to take their offense, and to do nothing with it. It says to pray for those. You know, it is really hard to pray for someone and not eventually love them. It's, it's really difficult. I challenge you to try it. For these people, you have, I know every one of you, I know you have somebody in your head right now. They walk through the room like, Ugh, right? There's somebody that's hurt you, said something about you, done you wrong. And right now, if you would start to daily pray for that person, watch what happens in your heart. Watch the compassion that you begin to have for them. Why? It's doing, why does God say, don't retaliate, pray to me? It's not so much about your enemy, it's about you. It's about your heart, about me getting this right. And as I talk to the Lord, God, at first I'm going to pray, God, smote them, smite them, whatever the, what, however you say it. Take them out, hellfire and brimstone. Let bear come and eat them. Like, I mean, I don't know. I might be praying this way at first, but before long, if I keep praying for them, God, he's going to start showing me his heart and what he feels for them. He might even show me where they've been wounded, and this really wasn't even about me. This was about something else that happened to them, that I could show compassion to them and kindness. My heart is going to change as I begin to pray, but my heart also gets reinfected every single time I tell the story of what they did to me. Every time I repeat it, it gets further and further entrenched in my heart. And so pray instead of retaliating. The second thing is by blessing them anonymously. Bless them anonymously. Now, I'm going to say Bless your enemies, acronym for B-Y-E, bye, right? Like, bless your enemies. And so that's why I added anonymously, because it's possible to justify, man, we humans know how to do it, to justify our actions and make them seem spiritual when we really know we're just trying to be the bigger person and to dig under their skin. I've, I've, I've seen this happen where people will come, and had it happened to me, maybe you've had to, where someone comes up to you, I forgive you. What are you saying? I'm the bigger person than you are, right? You did this to me, but I forgive you, okay? Do you see how these micro motives, where they are? So blessing someone anonymously, giving a gift when your enemy doesn't know you gave it, when it costs you greatly and they'll never thank you and they don't know that you're the bigger person, that's how to ensure that blessing your enemies is just between you and the Lord and not you secretly trying to dig at them, okay? Not you trying to get credit by anyone else. You don't tell everybody, did you? Yeah, they did this to me, but I washed their feet in the church. I'm sure they loved that, right? And so we bless them anonymously. Now, Scripture talks about this in Matthew 6. Watch out. Don't do your deeds publicly, your good deeds publicly, to be admired by others. For you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth. They have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth. That is all the reward. If you want the sympathy of your other friends, go ahead and do it in public. Go ahead and talk about it, and that's all the reward you'll ever get for that injustice done to you. But if you want this to be made right, if you want the peace of knowing that you pleased God in this situation and that you're working toward reconciliation, do it when no one knows it. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private for that person. 
And then your father who sees everything will reward you. What are you doing? You're sowing gentleness, kindness, forgiveness, and love into the spirit. And guess what you're going to reap? You know, the, the law of the harvest is I'm going to reap what I sow. So if I sow discord, malice, hatred, sneakiness, jealousy, spite, I'm going to give this gift to you out of spite so you know who I am. Guess what I'm going to continually reap? That person knows how, why you came to them and did that. And they're going to give it right back out to you. You're going to reap what you sow in excess. But if I sow love, mercy, kindness, the Lord himself will, will lavish those things on me. So it's giving it to a private. So I'm going to challenge you to bless your enemies anonymously. Bless them anonymously. Send them an Amazon gift card. Do something nice for them. Now, so I've said this in both services, and now if you get an Amazon card in the mail, you're going to think, who hates me, right? <laughs> so maybe don't use that one. The point is, make this between you and the Lord. Biblical apologizing also, the third thing is, it's fully acknowledging your own failures and apologizing. Now, again, maybe you're like Jesus, and you are truly innocent on all accounts of every wrong in this relationship. That's a possibility. Or the, the disciples who are persecuted for sharing the gospel. That's a possibility. But I would like to invite you to at least entertain the idea that maybe, especially in relational conflict, that it takes two to tango. Right? Maybe they were the bigger offending party, but is there anything at all in the situation that you could have done differently? That you could have modeled Christ better? And whatever that is, you need to apologize really fast, run through what that would look like. Biblical apologizing doesn't make excuses. I tell my children, the second you say, I'm sorry, but when you use that conjunction, you've scratched out the I'm sorry. There's nothing to excuse it. I did it. It's like David said with his sin that was murder and adultery. I did it and me alone. I am the guilty party. And God pardoned him and called him righteous and after his own heart. Saul did a much smaller offense of sacrificing when he wasn't supposed to. But God took the kingdom from him. Why? Because when the prophet approached him, he said, well, well you didn't show up. And I was just trying to serve the Lord. He made excuses. So no excuses. Just take the apology. Just give the apology. Don't deflect. Do you know what deflecting means? When I hold up this mirror, someone comes to you and says, you did this and it hurt. Well, you did that to me too. Okay. Anybody ever experienced that kind of conflict, right? All right. What are we doing? You know, we as humans don't like to wear shame, do we? It feels bad to wear shame. And deflecting is a way that I can take the shame off of me and put it back on you. Instead of wearing, I did it, I'm so sorry, I'm ashamed that I acted like that. Well, you did that and everyone else did that and no one thinks about me. It's a way that I can get the shame off of me quickly because I don't like the way that it feels. And this is not biblical apologizing. It also doesn't belittle the offense. It doesn't say things like, you're just being too sensitive, get over it. If it was big enough to wound them, then it should be big enough for me to acknowledge it doesn't linger after it's settled. As far as the east is from the west, remember kingdom jurisdiction, the way kingdom forgiveness works is that it keeps no record of wrongs. If you get in an argument with your spouse or your kids and you're listing things from 10 years ago that have already been settled, you're not loving like Jesus calls us to love. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Once it's over and dealt with, it's over and dealt with and we move on. And it also makes restitution when possible. Even in the Old Testament, when someone were to steal something, they would have to repay it. They didn't just get to say, I'm sorry, and be bop on. If they did something that cost someone something, intruded on someone's boundaries, they had to make recompense for that. In the New Testament, when tax collectors get saved, one of the markers of true repentance is that they started paying back all those they had stolen from. So what am I telling you? If you have marred someone's name, 
It's not enough to say, I'm sorry I talked about you or to apologize. Lord. You need to get yourself on the phone and clear that person's name to everybody you talk to. I should not have opened my mouth. I spoke too soon. I, put, I sowed this seed in your heart. It was wrong. God's convicted me. This is biblical apologizing. It's not just words. It's a, it's a heart condition. Does anybody else think this is hard? Anyone else maybe struggle a teeny bit with this? Or am I just really not sanctified and holy? Like, so he's requiring that we have total forgiveness. And, and so Peter, they were struggling with this too. Peter says, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive? Like seven in a day, seven? And Peter thought he was being like, Whew, seven whole times I'm going to forgive. And Jesus is like, no, seven times 70. 490 times somebody slaps you on the cheek, that's nearly 1,000 times you're going to be slapped that day, right? He's saying, no, you keep on in one day. What is Jesus? There's no end. The point is, it's not that if you're 491, that's it, it's over. Be done with them. It's the fact, Jesus is making a point. No, I want total and complete forgiveness. Do it again and again and again and again and again. This seems super, super impossible. And I think that's the point. And that's where our, our weakness becoming our strength. What Jesus is demanding of us, I'm going to use this strong word, demanding. What he's demanding of us is not something we can do in our human nature. We cannot love people who have wounded us and those we love like this. We cannot. It, ha- it takes something supernatural inside. It takes us being weak and admitting our weakness and coming to Christ. But typically, we try to forgive like the world forgives. And we don't even recognize that maybe what I'm really dealing with is unforgiveness and not this other issue. You know, when trauma happens to you, uh, something that makes you enraged, something that makes you scared, something that makes you fearful or hurt or wounds you, um, when this happens to you, especially as a child, uh, it sets off something in your brain where you want to disconnect from the left and the right brain. So this left side of your brain is the part of your brain that controls the thoughts about what happened, the actual encounter of this event. This right side of your brain is the emotion that, ha- that you're feeling. And when, you, when those are working together and you really encounter this threat of what has just happened to you, especially as a child, we'll talk about more of that in a minute, especially as a child and you feel alone, there's a tendency for you to shut down. Something's activated called the fight or flight response. So you'll go into three modes, fight, flight, or freeze. You'll start fight, and this carries over. If that original trauma is never to protect yourself, you shut off from the emotion of it. You don't think about it. You downplay it. You pretend like it wasn't as bad as it really was. You make excuses for it. You make a joke. You take a nap. You run from it. You pretend like it didn't happen. Anybody can relate. And this happens, and so much so that we get really good at burying things down low. And so what happens then continues to happen that any time that area in our heart is rubbed up against or triggered, we'll go back to this fight, flight, or freeze stage. That's why I said some of you will squirm and want to get out. Because when I start talking about things, you're loving your enemies like this, and when Jesus says you got to serve them, you got to let them slap you against the cheek immediately, you want to fight Jesus. Jesus, then you about to go, right? Now, what does this manifest itself like now? This means anybody who reminds you of your overprotective, harsh father, you're going to come up wanting to fight. Any perceived criticism, on your, you're overly critical to others, you're overly harsh to others, and you, but yet you can't take any feedback. People have to walk on eggshells around you. You outburst of anger very easily. That's the fight response. Or you might have the flight response that just wants to get out of there and pretend like it didn't happen. Maybe you're like me. I used to think I could just take a nap and I would no longer be mad at anyone. And honestly, I could do that. 
it works. I'd take a nap and forget all about what you did for me, and I'd say I forgave you, and it wasn't actually forgiveness. It was a coping technique. It was, I'm going to ignore that this happened. I'm going to make a joke and pretend like it wasn't that big of a deal, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hide from it. So I'm flying, I'm, I'm fleeing from it, and this is why you want to get out of the room or just change the subject. Or there's the shutdown, that I'm going to totally numb this and really just let it make it go away. How do we do that? I'll work constantly. Because when I sit still, if you sit still and you don't like the way the loneliness and depression hits you when you have nothing to occupy your time, that's a signal that there's undealt with trauma. That you've been running from it, you've been shutting down by just working or mindless binge TV watching, mindless binge eating, alcoholism, um, uh, lots of things, even, even lust can actually be a symptom of unforgiveness. Now, how? Did you know that there is a group of Christian psychologists that can with fairly high accuracy predict, based on what you type in that search engine, what your family origin story was? Because most people with this issue are running from something or to something. They're running away or they're trying to reenact. They're trying to get power over this. This makes me feel in control. This makes me feel powerful. This can't reject me. This won't make me feel lonely. Do you see this? And so while you've been thinking you have a lust issue, you actually have an unforgiveness issue, a trauma issue that's never really been dealt with because it's always just been buried or hidden. Video games, work, even ministry, anything to cover it up and take up my time so that I don't have to sit still long enough to feel this. Do you see how what Jesus is asking, kingdom forgiveness is circumcision of the heart. It cuts so deep. It forces us and it wants to permeate through every part of our lives. It wants to go deeper. It cuts through all of our human defenses. In Matthew 18, Jesus says this, And in wrath his master turned him over to the torturers. This is talking about the unforgiving servant, who he had been forgiven, but he wouldn't forgive. So his master turns him over to the torturers until he paid all that he owed. My heavenly father, this sounds hard, my heavenly father will also do the same to every one of you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. It doesn't just require kingdom forgiveness. It demands kingdom forgiveness. You can't even be forgiven unless, why? Why? This is harsh. The torturers, what's he talking about? You know, in Roman, uh, during the Roman Empire, one particularly cruel form of punishment is if someone murdered someone else, they would make the offender, after they were tried and found guilty, they would make the offender wear the deceased person's body. On, they would tie it to the person's, to the offender. So the deceased body would be on top of the murderer's back, and he would have to carry it around. And eventually, the decay and the death would sink into his own skin, become toxic, and kill him. This is a picture of unforgiveness. We think that we are hurting the person by holding on to it, but actually, we are carrying around their sin, their falls, we're carrying, it is infecting us. It's a poison, it's been said. Unforgiveness is a poison we drink but expect them to die from. Now, why does Jesus use this verbiage? Why does he say you can't be forgiven, you'll be tortured? It has to do, it's not with meanness, but jurisdiction. Here's the boundary line. If you want to receive forgiveness, it requires you come into the kingdom, and no unforgiveness can be found in this kingdom. That either the cross is powerful enough for their sin or it's not powerful enough for your sin. He's talking about jurisdiction. He's talking about staying in the kingdom that no death and decay and bitterness and rage is allowed over here. You have to leave that over here to come in here. Do you see this? It's the law of the land. 
you have to get rid of that first. The power of the cross of Jesus Christ is that it vanquished the power of sin over you. But not just your sin. Also their sin. This means I don't have to carry what anyone did to me around for the rest of my life because the cross was bigger than it. That I can let it go, as Elsa says. So I'm going to give you two quick things that the kingdom of God, kingdom forgiveness demands, and then we'll close. And so I am using the word demands because it is a requirement. If I used any other word, I fear that I would be diluting the word of God, the words of Jesus, because he did not minimize or trivialize. He chose these words specifically and intentionally. Kingdom forgiveness demands, number one, raw honesty about what's really happened. Raw honesty. Their part and your part. Now, the patriarchs, I've, I've told you guys this before, the patriarchs of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all throughout the judges, um, King David, the Bible did not hide their deep flaws. It told the story of the patriarchs with honor and honesty. Do you hear me? Honor and honesty. Now, I'm talking about raw honesty about who you need to forgive, knowing that some of you are holding yourself still to blame. Your own shame is what you're carrying around. And you uh, weirdly think that it's noble or righteous to do so. You're carrying around your own shame even if you're not cognizant of it. You may not even realize the reason your children can't say anything to you about something you've done wrong without you defending yourself is because you know you failed them in certain ways and you don't want to admit it. And so honesty, but listen, until I acknowledge this thing exists, I can't deal with it. And part of this is because we have a faulty classification of people as good or bad. We would look at some a king that stole someone else's wife and murdered their husband and lied to cover it up. And would we classify him as a good and righteous man after God's own heart? But the scripture does. The scripture calls Abraham the, the, the father of our faith and a righteous man. And yet what he did to Hagar was sick and wicked. And so we classify people good or bad, even ourselves. And so we think if I admit the flaws of myself or the flaws of my parents, then I'm saying that they're bad instead of good. And so can I just break the ice to you that most, most of our OG, if we're talking about original trauma, is coming from mama and daddy, even the good ones. Another reason we don't want to admit that is because God's law is written on our heart to honor mom and dad. And so intrinsically, I know, no, they were good, and look at these parents. I mean, my parents did all these good things for me. It's not always big T traumas. Even an overly harsh father can produce something inside, or an overly demanding mother can produce something inside that goes wonky, where now I believe that God is demanding these things from me. And so it doesn't have to be big things, but I'm telling you that some of your behaviors, your body is telling you that something else is going on. There is something under the surface that you have not dealt with. So we have to be honest about our own flaws, first of all. And when I say we want to honor our parents, the other reason that we're usually really trepidatious, I've never been with someone that they haven't made excuses. That's just how their generation parented. They were better than their parents, okay? Listen, I'm not saying they're bad. 
But are they human? Does, do all of us make mistakes? Will all of us wound our kids? Every single one of us. Because why? We're human. And so we're going to learn to glory in our weaknesses. For part of my, your part, was acknowledging that it doesn't do my children any favors for me to pretend like I haven't wounded them in certain areas. It doesn't do me any favors because they know it, I know it, and when I acknowledge it, we can move forward. But as long as I pretend like it's not there, I can't. And so some of this not talking about our parents is because what does that mean for me as a parent if I acknowledge their failures for me? Another reason we don't like to acknowledge our parents' wounds is because we've seen people use it as an excuse for their own lives, right? And so we don't want to be like that. And I'm not telling you to. I'm telling you to glory in your weaknesses. For me, acknowledging my failure as, failures as a mother, what it does is it releases my kids from having to idolize me as the good mom. Now God gets the glory. Anything, they saw me at my worst. I honor, I acknowledge it, express my sympathy for them. And then they see me growing toward Christ. Jesus gets the glory and not me as a good mom. That's the power of acknowledging it. That I can openly say it wasn't me. I would have totally ruined this whole thing. And you, you would be in therapy. You would be admitted, right? Had it not been for, the, had it not been for Jesus, baby. It gives, this is how glory in our weaknesses gives Jesus the chance to shine up. But it's also acknowledging what they really did to you. And to stop downplaying it. Even in salvation. A, B, C, to come to Christ, admit, believe, confess. We're not doing any favors to people around us when we downplay or trivialize pain that they've caused us because it's not true forgiveness. It's pretending like it really wasn't that bad. It's pretending like it didn't hurt. That's not true forgiveness. And when I get saved, before I can ever believe and confess that Jesus is Lord, I have to admit that I'm a sinner. And I don't come to this altar and say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I wasn't as bad as my dad was. And I really didn't mean it, right? I have to fully acknowledge it. And this is the same thing. To give forgiveness is the same way to release forgiveness, to receive forgiveness. I have to fully admit how bad this was. I have to fully admit how, I want to explain to you why my lovely assistant, my husband, is going to come up and help me. What I'm hoping to show you is that real forgiveness cannot be given until we're honest about the depth of the wound. Now, I know you're watching him because he's so handsome, but did you catch that? Real forgiveness cannot be given until we acknowledge the depth of the of the wound until we acknowledge it. Second Corinthians, as he stands there looking pretty, Second Corinthians, Paul says this, three times I beg the Lord to take this away. And many of you, you just want to stop this behavior. I don't know why I acted like this. I don't know why I'm hurting my kids. I don't know wh why I can't sleep at night, even though I took a lot of melatonin. I don't know where this panic attack came from. I don't know where this behavior is coming from. Three times I asked the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is what you need. Not for the whole thing to go away. My grace is what you need. Because my power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power can work through me. That is why I take pleasure in my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, troubles that I suffer. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. This is not about you carrying trauma or being savvy or coping. This is about you truly dealing with it like this. It is inevitable if this represents your life, 
This represents your life. This chocolate syrup is like trauma. And I'm going to tell you, there are none of us who escape this. Some of us have bigger issues than others. Some of us have come from really broken families of lost people, and it's worse than others. But we all are going to have an element of trauma. And then life happens, and this happened so down deep as a kid. Let me tell you that there is not a single person, as he fills this up, see how we can hide it? It can stay buried down there pretty deep. We have gotten so good at making excuses or downplaying the hurt that was there that often we don't even recognize it's there. Part of the reason we have to be involved in the body of Christ is because I, most people cannot even really recognize where it's coming from alone. Why? Because your childhood is your only point of reference as a child. It's the only thing you know as a child. It's, you think it's normal because it is your normal. So you don't even recognize when something is not right unless you have the help of the Spirit of God or, or perhaps both, the help of someone else that says, ah, I don't know about that. Yeah, but why? I don't think that's healthy. We need people to point it out in us. But it's easy to think, no, I'm good. I'm just going to keep that down there. Except that sometimes other trauma happens to us and stirs and triggers previous trauma. And then you can't hide it anymore. It's like black mold that you think you can just get by with just shutting the door and pretending that closet doesn't have black mold. Except the mold's going to seep into the rest of the house. I know it's dirty work. I know you don't want to rip up the walls. I know you don't want to go back there. But if you don't, it's going to affect every area of your life. And this is why we have to deal with it. Because you're going to lose a loved one. And death is going to trigger everything from the OG stuff, the OG fears that you had. That's original gangster if anyone is not a millennial, Right? The original trauma that caused it is being triggered. Brandon and I have realized that as mother and father, as spiritual mothers and fathers, that a lot of what people get triggered with with us, if we hurt them, whether unintentionally, hopefully we don't intentionally, or even if it's a perceived hurt by us, that a lot of times that we're really triggering mother and father wounds in people because they're trying to get something out of us, approval, affection, to notice me, validate me, family. They're trying to get something from us that mom and dad didn't quite give them. And so we've tried to be super careful to acknowledge that while they may be angry at us about this, there's a reason this set them off like that. Listen, when you lose your temper, you lose your cool, and you act like you've lost your mind, why that? There's a million things that can make you mad. Why that in particular? Get a healthy curiosity. Ask yourself. Why did this make me so, so mad? I talked to a girl that I was counseling, and she said, it just made me so mad because these girls at work just let me down. They don't uphold their end. They don't do what they're supposed to do. I was like, well, why that? Why does that bother you? Not doing, I mean, you could get a lot mad at a lot of things, but why does this make you so mad that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing? Because they let me down, and it puts more on me. I said, when's the first time you felt like that? And she starts bawling. Well, my mom let me down. and didn't do what she, so I had to carry this as a kid. Do you see that? A healthy curiosity that maybe this is tied to something deeper than I even acknowledge. And the reason why it's so important is because, go ahead, life keeps happening. And if I don't know what to do with this, it's going to spill out onto those I love. You can't afford not to deal with your trauma. Because <laughs> if you don't deal with your trauma, you're going to force your kids to deal with your trauma. You're going to force your spouse. You're going to force those you love. Every relationship close to you, whether it's your church family, whether it's your close friends, every single relationship in your life that's close and intimate, you're going to spill this out on them. 
This is why we have to have the courage to do the right thing. So how do we do it? What Brandon, my lovely assistant, show them what they're supposed to do. Cast all your cares upon him. Every day, the practice of when something happens, as I'm shown, and let me tell you, this is a process. Because what happens is when I recognize something and it comes up, ugh, the Lord is so gracious like a gentle surgeon that he doesn't come in and try to do deep surgery all in one day. Jesus said, I have much I want to tell you, but you're not ready to bear it now. So he'll answer one question at a time. And as it comes up, then I pour it out. I cast all my cares on him because he cares for me. I become a weak so that his power can be made perfect in my weakness. And then he washes me with the water of the word. Now you notice there's still some brown stuff in there. Why? Because this is a process. It's not an event. And it's going to take a lifetime of God healing us and setting things right. This is why I said the Spirit of God hovering over the water, and he wants to make some things that are chaotic now. He wants to bring order and form to them. But we have to be willing to be weak before him. If you want to know, thank you, if you want to know the superpower of how people can be strong and joyful and have peace and overcome these things, it's because they're weak. It's the secret place where I exchange my weakness for his strength. In Psalm 62, 8, trust him at all times. People, pour out your heart before him. God is a God of refuge for us. And again, I'm going to say, pour out your heart to him. And then also, I would encourage you to grab a believer, someone healthy, because what's going to happen is what's happening to some of you right now as I talk about this. As soon as you start to feel, as soon as that left side starts to connect and you start to feel the emotion of what you felt when that event happened, you're going into fight or flight or shutdown. You need somebody who's not crazy, right? Don't, don't choose somebody that's crazy. Somebody that is spiritually healthy. Somebody that does have a good po- proper context that can sit with you and hear your story, feel what you feel. Did you know scientists actually say that's what it's called uh, brain integration. It heals. The left, the left side of the brain begins to connect when you tell your story to someone who helps regulate your emotions and makes you feel safe. Someone that's not going to bring you back to want to fight those people. You just leave everybody. You just run. Oh, I can't believe they do that to you. That's not who you need to be talking to. But when you tell your story to someone who is empathetic, healthy, and they listen and feel your pain, that it literally heals your brain. Left side to right side, cast all your cares on him. They're able to see and help you navigate through some of these things that you can't see because you're too engrossed in it and to walk you on this journey. But it is a process, but we have to at least be honest about what's happened. And the second and last thing, the worship team can come up. After I'm honest about what's happened, I hold up the cross to the offense. Let's talk about this verse in Matthew chapter 6. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. He's not being cruel. He's saying, son, if you want to be over here, you can't take that dead body in this jurisdiction. You have to leave that unforgiveness out, out the boundary lines. You're a citizen of heaven. You can't cross this. It's the courage to say, this really happened I'm going to stop pretending like it was okay because it wasn't. I'm going to stop pretending like it's good, I'm fine, I'm over, it's no big deal. I'm going to stop making jokes about it like it was nothing. I'm going to hold it up and be honest, raw honesty about what I did or what they did. But I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to hold the cross up to that. 
I'm going to say what they did was horrible, God, and it hurt, and it should have never happened to me. But what you did was greater. The trauma that Jesus endured on the cross is greater than any trauma that we have endured here. It is more powerful than anything from our past. And so do you see the potency of real forgiveness? That when I truly acknowledge it, it's not surface forgiveness. It's not covering it up. It's saying, yes, it was horrible. But what Jesus did was enough. If I don't believe the cross was good enough for them, then I really don't believe it was good enough for me. When I magnify my sin, my shame, their sin, their shame, what I'm doing is trivializing the cross. To receive forgiveness, I have to get into kingdom forgiveness. I have to get into kingdom jurisdiction. And no sin is allowed there, not even theirs. You can't take their sin over there. You give it, you pour it out to God, hold up the cross. 1 John 2 says this, He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of the world. Prove you believe this. Do you believe the cross is enough? Not just our sins, the sins of the world. Release all offenders. Jesus, you were beaten and stripped and mocked and scourged. You laid on that cross naked and rejected by man, not just for when I fail, but for when they failed me. The power of the cross is enough. The punishment of the cross was enough. I require no further penalty because Jesus was penalized for what they did to me. That is true forgiveness. Now, do you see how much more potent and concentrated and real that is than simply taking a nap and pretending like it's fine and being nice to them? That's true forgiveness. It's it's the difference between teenagers and love and a couple who's been married for 50 years, got married as teenagers, went through betrayal and hurt and trauma, sickness and poverty, had babies that turned into children who turned into crazy teenagers who turned into adults who had more babies and grandbabies and now they sit on their rocking chairs and they look at the birds because that's what old people do. Apparently I'm becoming old because I like watching birds. And they garden. Isn't it funny? After they've gone through all that, they suddenly notice things little kids notice now again. Do you see the difference between this relationship, tried and true and deep, and the surface? This is the difference between the world's forgiveness. I'll forgive you, but I won't forget what you did. I'll forgive you, but I'm never getting involved in the church again. I'll forgive you, but I'll never be around anybody who reminds me of you. I'll forgive you, but I won't, I won't forget it. I won't ever forget it. That's the world's forgiveness. But kingdom forgiveness is where there's freedom. Kingdom forgiveness is where all sin loses power over you. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, be sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past messages. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and share. For more content, to connect with us, or if you'd like to support this ministry by giving, visit our website, iheartchurch.online. We love you and have a great day.